it's it's like it's like when you're a director. Yeah. And you have to direct famous people. Yes. Um, and you've never met those people, and you turn up on the day, and you do it for the first time, and you might have spoken to them on the phone, uh, and you just got to get on with it, and you can't, yeah. you can't be, you can't be starry-eyed, and you, you just have to be professional, and you need to know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so you know, you just, you just get on with it, don't you? You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next sixty minutes, or one hundred and twenty minutes, or however long it takes, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR, and uh, for this episode of the Blue Box Podcast, I am being joined by... Well, i tell you what, I'm being joined by somebody who is part of the absolute bread and butter of our understanding and appreciation of the original series of Doctor Who. And I shall tell you for why in a minute, but first of all, I'd better tell you who it is. It's Paul Venezis. Hello, Paul. Hi, JR. How are you? <laughs> I'm very good. How are you? I am just, a, I've just had my tea, so I'm very happy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's probably the best time of day. Now, the reason I said you're part of the bread and butter of our understanding and appreciation of the classic series of Doctor Who is because, oh my God, amongst other things, you're responsible for a number of documentaries on the DVDs. You're in part with the, you know, the rest of the team for restoring those DVDs back to the you know, restoring those films back to the quality that we're having them in now. Not just that, but you're also in part responsible for finding and recovering some of the episodes that we've been able to watch. And on top of all that, a bunch of other stuff as well, which no doubt we'll go into later. You're absolutely right at the grassroots of the classic series Doctor Who is, uh, well so much stuff written down on this list in front of me so what i'd like to do first of all is absolutely forget doctor who paul right okay <laughs> because you're also quite well known for a number of other things but what people probably listening to this <laughs> listening to this uh podcast there's not a single person who will not have seen something that you've produced or directed and i'm not talking about doctor who stuff i'm talking about regular stuff because your day job all that Doctor Who stuff is basically, well, I was going to say a hobby, not really a hobby, but your day job has got absolutely nothing to do with Doctor Who. You're a television director and producer. That, that's right. Um, I, I think, <clears throat> actually, um, Doctor Who can be part of my day job, but not very often. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, most, most of what I do is, um, is directing TV shows and producing TV shows for... Um, ITV and the BBC and other channels. So, yeah. Well, we'll get into... I mean, you've done some very interesting stuff, and we'll get into that in just a second. 
The other thing you're most famous for, and obviously, you know, the missing episodes comes into this, but you're basically a film collector, old films, old TV programmes. Go back to when you were a boy, however old you were, which came first, collecting films or wanting to work in television? Oh, um, it was definitely uh, wanting to work in television that, that, got, that, that came first. Um, I think because people know my background um, as a Doctor Who fan, um, and I've kind of always been a Doctor Who fan ever since I can remember, really, yeah. um, they would probably assume that I wanted to get into television because I watched Doctor Who. Um, actually, that that's not really true because my the, the things I first remembered watching and being fascinated by um, were the Thames TV shows like the Tomorrow People. Oh, really? Um, yeah, that, that's. I guess I probably. I mean, I watched Doctor Who every week. Um, it was always on in our house. Um, so I think, I mean, my very first memory was an episode of the Crotons. Um, <laughs> then I don't, I think I remember the opening title sequence to Ambassadors of Death, um, but non, nothing else from that season. I remember Terror of the Autons almost scene by scene, um, the demons, the mind of evil. Um, not really a great deal from... Um, uh, the 1972 series, but I do remember the Sea Devils, the repeat of the Sea Devils when when it was uh, the cricket was rained off. I remember watching that. Yeah, and and the Tomorrow People, which started I think in 72 or 73. So um, and the Tomorrow People were, was uh, they did really wacky stuff with CSO, uh, and I just. I was kind of hooked on the technology of television then, and then I noticed it in Doctor Who, of course, but it was really the Tomorrow People that kind of kicked it off. Um, and that's really what, what made me interested in it. it I, I guess I kind of had an idea that I'd quite like to work in TV, but, but um, uh, I only really made a serious decision to, to, to work in television after I'd seen Edge of Darkness in 1985. That was kind of the thing that that made me stop focusing on making crap films with my mates at the weekend <laughs> uh, uh, and doing it properly. Um, and, um, and, it, and it coincided with a general interest in, you know, a renewed interest in, in Doctor Who fandom. I joined the Doctor Who Appreciation Society in 1982 um, and I was only in it for three years. I, it kind of really wasn't for me. Yeah, um, yeah. And I kind of got out of it in 1985. I mean, Doctor Who really wasn't very good then. And I just had this greater appreciation for, for drama. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, and Edge of Darkness was on. And when, you, you, know, when you, you compare Edge of Darkness to Time Lash, there's kind of no contest there, really. Yeah, quite. So, so um, uh, and that's not the fault of the producers of Doctor Who. They just didn't have any money. Uh, uh, but um, you know, I'd grown up by that stage. Really, I was a twenty-year-old, and uh, and I was I was interested in uh, in quality drama, and and I just wanted a part of that. And so that that sent me on this course to to a career in television. Well, you, going back to what you were saying just now, 
that's actually been, oddly enough, my experience of other people who've gone into television having been Doctor Who fans. Doctor Who kind of becomes like wallpaper because you're watching it all the time. It's when something else comes along, that's what kind of kickstarts your imagination almost. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, they, they, it's interesting because, you know, there was Edge of Darkness and um, the Monocle Mutineer, I think, was on in 84. I'd enjoyed, I, did, I don't think I saw it the first time around, but I saw the repeat of that. That was a really high quality production. Yes, I remember then there that, was, yeah. Yeah, then there was Edge of Darkness. Then the following year, The Singing Detective, which just kind of blew me away and got me interested in Dennis Potter. And... Um, the uh, the Howard Brenton four-parter Deadhead, which uh, was, was was a fabulous thing, and um, I kind of couldn't quite believe it had even got made. Actually, I don't think the director could, <laughs> Rob Walker could believe it got made either. Um, well, it's funny, and... the 1980s are remembered for being a dreadful decade in all the arts, and yet actually you look at some of the stuff that came out of the 1980s, and there's some pretty interesting stuff there, really, isn't there? Well, yes. I mean, you have Blot on the Landscape and uh, Life and Loves of a She-Devil. Um, these these were really top of their game dramas. And then you had Screen 1 and Screen 2. Um, I kind of, I briefly worked on a, on a Screen 2 in 1990. Wow. Um, called The Laughter of God with um, Amanda Donohoe and Peter Firth. And basically, it, it had everything in it that you would want in a drama, sex, violence, and bad language. <laughs> um, and um, so it was, it, was, it was a fabulous thing. I, I actually had to, I had to sync up. I was, a, I was a, an assistant film editor, and the job of the assistant film editor, um, as well as assisting the editor in the cutting room during the edit, um, which, which actually, in reality, means going to a box and finding the right bit of film for him. Right. So you need, so you need, so you need a script, and you need to know what the take is, or the shot and the take, and that's in a box. And you have organised the, the cutting room so that you know where everything is. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's all related to the shot lists and all of that. Um, and the director has a tr what's called a tramline script and. Um, which is created by the production assistant on location. And so each time a take is shot on the film, um, she draws a line in, in a particular colour down the script for the length of the shot, according to the script. Right. So if there's three paragraphs and the shot is for those three paragraphs, there's a vertical line in blue that goes all the way down. And at the top it says take one. And then for take two, there'll be a green line, which if they abandon it halfway through, the line will only go halfway through to the point where it cuts off. Right. And so on. And, and, and um, it'll say shot 76, take one, shot 76, take two, and so on. And my job as a film assistant would be to have a box for shot 76. And that all sounds... Horribly complicated. Well, that's, I how, guess, that's how it was. I guess it's the kind of thing days. once you're used to doing it, you 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 know you just used to doing it, so you just do it. That's 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 right. But before you even get to that stage, because the, of course on film you've got the film is in the camera, but there's no sound on it. The sound is recorded on a quarter inch tape, 
and that quarter inch tape is then transferred to 16 millimeter magnetic film stock and then I then take that film that's been shot and the magnetic film and using the clapperboard which you when we started this recording you did a clap to sync things up that's exactly why what 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 is used on um, on film you use a clapperboard you mark it visually and when the two bits of the board clap together it creates a nice smack on the sound and then you have to match that to the frame on the film yeah Um, and then when you get to the end sometimes the film runs on a bit so you need to put spacer in for the length of the length of the, of the sound that carries on, because the sound recorders might say there might be a plane, and you might say, uh, "Everyone, quiet, keep recording." The camera will turn off, but the sound guy will keep going, because if you want to edit that sound, that conversation, you'll need the sound of the plane trailing off. Yeah. Um, and so my job on the Laughter of God was to sync up a sex scene. <laughs> which was quite a raunchy thing and there were lots of huffing and puffing and all of that and lots of the camera stopping but the sound carrying on to pick, <laughs> to pick up all sorts of interesting things so yeah. wow yeah but right before we go anywhere else then does television work in the same way these days do you still actually have things like clapperboards yeah um it, it's not to the same quite the same extent but sound is still recorded separately um, there was a job I was doing a couple of weeks ago I just did one day and um, it was it's a new BBC three series about women and technology and um, actually one of the producer directors on it was Ed Stradling and he rang up the day before their final shoot um, and said we, we need uh, a fourth cameraman tomorrow um, it's got to be a producer director because it's a visual it needs visually yeah. directing um, needs to have some someone with a, a knowledge of framing and can use this particular camera are you free and I just happened to be free and so I did a day um, shooting this uh, this show and um, the way they'd organized um, the production the sound recordist rather than using clapperboards because there were so many people involved, he had two boom microphones. Um, so he had, had he had a boom, and his his assistant had a boom, and the assistant's boom was on a, a radio transmitter, and that was going back to a solid state recorder that he got tucked away. Um, and all of the contributors were on radio mics, and they they were all on different frequencies, which he'd had to book. I think um, if you're using that many frequencies you yeah know, it's it's safer to book the frequency with the uh, the authorities for that particular day for which you pay a fee right yeah um, uh, so that you're guaranteed use of that frequency yeah um, because with so many you'll you'll easily fill up lots of the, the frequencies that other people generally try and use so um, uh, so all of those sound frequencies are going back to that recorder and of course we had four cameras, all of which were recording different things at different times with different people. And so every now and then the sound recorders would say to me, that girl and that mentor over there are having a really interesting chat, get a shot. 
I didn't need to worry about the sound because it was all being recorded right, back yeah. onto this recorder. And what's tying it all together is not a clapperboard, but it's time code. Yeah. And not only is he sending, is he recording um, all of that sound, I don't know, 10, 15, possibly 20 channels of sound, he's also transmitting the same time code to all of the cameras, and all of the cameras had a time code <coughs> receiver on. Right. So instead of a clapperboard, we've got time code. But essentially, the sound is separate to the picture and will have to be synced up at a later date. I tell you what, getting into the editing room on something like that, probably A, is very daunting, but at the same time, B, sounds like it's probably a lot of fun. It can be, because if you're somebody like me who's a director, you get into the cutting room after all that nasty business of syncing up the sound is done. Yeah. But it's great fun for somebody else. The other thing as well is, is, is that technology is so good these days that a lot of the non-linear systems that we use to edit programmes um, are so advanced that you can just put the media in, tell it there's a, t there's a common time code, <clears throat> and it will just match everything up together on the timeline. Right. Do you find... So, Go on, sorry. I, I was just going to say, so it's... So it, the, the technology is now helps a lot more than it used to. Yeah, I was I was going to ask with with this tele technology having facilitated the ease of production, I suppose. Do you think that there's something lost in the spirit of production because that kind of side of it's been made easier? Do you think people don't necessarily need to? And I don't, I don't mean this as pejoratively as it probably sounds, but do you think people perhaps don't have to work quite as hard to get what they need as they maybe did when you started in television 25 years ago? Well, they, they, they certainly don't need to work as hard um, in acquiring the, the content. Yeah. Um, at least not technically. Mm. But equally, um, there are other pressures which... Um, which come to bear. So um, what, what I've noticed recently, I mean, I think I first started um, as a self-shooting uh, director. That is, I, just, I not only produce and direct, but I also film my own content. Yeah. I first started doing that in 1996 um, when Sony brought out um, the VX1000 DV camera. So basically, the, the VX1000 was, was, a, was a mini DV camera. It was the first mini DV camera that Sony brought out. And uh, we started using it, I think I first used it in, I first used it at the end of 1996. And then it was used on a, on a, on a daytime DIY series that, that I directed called Real Rooms. Um, and I would film all the DIY bits on that camera uh, and then when I had the camera crew, they would do everything that involved the presenter right. and the contributors. And then in the edit, um, you would have initially some difficulty getting the sound to, to sound as good as it could be because the camera wasn't designed to be a professional broadcast camera. But right, I, yeah. I, I mean, I travelled the entire country with, with that camera. I, I, I even did a programme on an oil rig in the North Sea. Um, 
So, uh, and which was an adventure in itself. So, <laughs> um, uh, so um, it was only because broadcasters started using that particular camera that Sony thought, okay, well, can we can we produce a professional broadcast version of this camera? And that's why we've got DV Cam, or why we had DV Cam. Um, and it's also why they then brought out um, the Z1 and the Z5 and the Z7 cameras, which then became solid state re recorders in the EX1 and the EX3 cameras. And and now we've gone the to the next step. Um, and uh, we've gone from those, if you like, semi-professional cameras to professional 4K cameras, literally in the last year. Oh, really? Wow. So um, for the same amount of money that, that um, I, could, I could go out and buy a, a, the Canon sort of news shooter's camera, yeah. about £5,000, I can buy a Sony 4K camera without a lens. I have to put my own lens on it. But I can buy a Sony 4K camera that will work out of the box. Um, and it re and it's a, it's a solid state camera. It records to flash cards, flash drive cards, which are super fast. And um, uh, you know, I'm thinking about getting one because it it could, if I've got my own camera and I can take it with me anywhere, I can shoot my own stuff as well as shooting stuff for other people. Well, yeah. If you have your own camera, you're not tied down to, well, exactly. Look, I mean, it has, to be, it has to be in a format that, that broadcasters yeah. want to use. Look, let's go right back to, well, that little boy. Well, not, maybe not such a little boy. He's watching Edge of Darkness. Actually, really not a little boy at all by the time you were watching about, Edge. I, was, when it, I think my birthday was in the middle of it, so I was 19 when it started and 20 when it finished. Would you have been at university by that point? I didn't go to university. You didn't go to university? Well, no, this I, is what I was going to ask. How do you go from watching Edge of Darkness to actually making television programmes then? I left school when I was 16. Um, I wasn't really very academic. Yeah, OK. Yeah. And um, so I, I think when I went to see my careers officer and said, I want to be a, t I want to be a cameraman, you know, a television cameraman, what mm. do I need to be a television cameraman? She kind of looked down her glasses at me and, <coughs> and looked at her notes and said, well, you haven't got physics, you haven't got electronics, you need all of those things if you want to be a TV cameraman. She said, I think that you could be a clerk. <laughs> do you still have her address? <laughs> My dad came with me, actually. It's the first time I heard him swear when he came out. Oh, really? Um, Oh yeah, um, and uh, that must have been in about 1981. And 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 I did stay on in the sixth form, and I, I lasted about two weeks. I just had enough of it. Yeah. And um, I, I I basically signed up to become a builder. I went on a building course, and I did a three-year uh, apprenticeship. Uh, yeah, a BTEC diploma. In, oh right, um, yeah, yeah. In in building construction. Um, and I did that for three years, and I qualified, and that took me to 1985. And I kind of knew that it wasn't really for me, but I did it for the for the so I could fall back on building if I ever needed to. You're a Tom um, Baker. Yeah, I guess. So, yeah. <laughs> um, 
I don't have the hair anymore. But... <laughs> yeah. um, so that's what I did. And, um, uh, and I'm guessing while you were doing that then is while you were doing films at the weekend with your mates? Yeah, um, yeah well, kind of. I mean, actually... Yeah, kind of. Um, it really started um, in 1986 that... I, I, in 1985, I finished that course. Yeah. Um, had the summer off. And then I did a foundation course um, in uh, Soli Hall. Art and design, three-dimensional design, photography, um, which then became... It was a sound recording course as well, which I got onto in the second year. Uh, so the first year was a foundation course, and then I didn't really get into... I was going to be an interior designer, because I thought, I've got building, I've got three-dimensional design, I'll become an interior designer. Yeah. Um, and I didn't get onto the courses, the the, um, the degree courses that I needed to get onto to go further with it. Uh, I, I, I would have had to have um, uh, basically reapplied the following year. Um, and it was really in 1986 I, I made a, a, an awful film, a kind of a spoof of the demons, which we filmed in Oldbourne with Richard Franklin. Um, and um, that kind of got me even more interested in filmmaking. And a lot of my friends got more interested in it as well. Um, and, I suppose uh, even if what you've done doesn't turn out to live up to what you might have wanted it to be. The experience of actually doing it is something that sits with you, isn't it? Well, it was shit. Um, <laughs> is but, it on but, YouTube somewhere? That's what no, I need no, to no. ask. It, it, no, it isn't. It's nowhere. It's, it's in my own archive, and it's, that's where it's going to stay. That's but, um, <clears throat> but it, I mean, it was. It was shit. And, um, but we learnt from being shit how not to be shit. Yeah. And... Um, uh, and then the following year, um, myself and Steve Broster, well, in fact, Steve, Steve Broster and his, his pal Dave Harley wrote uh, another spoof Doctor Who thing, which they never finished. Um, but we had great fun doing that. And by that stage, um, I got a place at Newport Film School in South Wales. And um, literally two weeks of, of me being into the course... I came back to Birmingham uh, with a borrowed rifle mic um, and we started making um, Steve's unfinished movie. <laughs> um, and I had two fantastic years at Newport Film School with, um, um, in my year, Adam Trotman, who um, was a second unit director on the Doctor Who Christmas special last year. Oh, and, yeah. And he edited it as well. Um, and Dave Poor who does music for Grand Designs, amongst other things, and Alan Niblo, who um, is a feature film producer. He worked on The Sweeney and um, Southwest Nine and Human Traffic and that kind of thing. Wow. Um, and a, a whole variety of others. Ewan Price, who's... Uh, um, he was really interested in sound. He was in the Welsh punk band Youthant. Um, uh, and now he works... Uh, I can't remember what company he works for, but he does a lot of sport. He works on outside broadcasts doing recordings and slow-mo and VT replays and that kind of thing. Oh, right, yeah. Um, and um, 
pretty much everybody um, who was in who was on on that year of the course is is still working in television now or film or feature films. Um, Classic my, class. Yeah, the, the, my assistant on um, uh, on my graduation film, Joanne Dale. She was in the year below me. Uh, I taught her how to sync up, which is the job I had at the BBC doing yeah. the laughter of God and Howard's Way and the Silent Revolution. Um, and she was an assistant editor on, I think, all of the Harry Potter films and loads of other stuff. So, you know, it, it was a fantastic wow. course and, and it, 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 it led us, it put us on a really good footing to get, it was a practical course. We could, we kind of, we could kind of do anything that we wanted to really. Did you walk straight into a job afterwards then? Because you did a, you did twenty two years at the BBC, didn't you? Did that start immediately afterwards, or was there other stuff pretty, in between? Pretty much. Um, what happened was, um, I did work experience at BBC Pebble Mill in over the Easter break in nineteen eighty nine, and I was there for two weeks, and I had a third week um, available to me. Uh, so I asked if I could stay on for a third week. Yeah. And my pal Adam, um, Adam Trotman, did the work experience with me at the same time. Um, and I guess you would, would have been able to go home as well while you were doing that. Yeah, yeah. It, <clears throat> it, was, it was fantastic because yeah. it was, um, I mean, Pebble Mill, it was about four miles from my house. So it was, it was great. And... Um, they were they were brilliant there. I I spent two weeks in a basement room syncing up a, um, a documentary series called The Silent Revolution about the uh, uh, the revolution in the, far <coughs> the food revolution in the farming industry, and um, uh, then I went back to college and finished my film and graduated and got got my qualification, and then there was a phone call, literally in the last two weeks of, of the course uh, from from um, BBC Birmingham and they just said we need two assistant film editors, trainee assistant film editors to start uh, at the end of July. Um, those two guys that came at Easter were really good, we'd like them to come, Ugh. are they interested? And the two of us went to, uh, for a chat, it wasn't even an interview, they just asked us if you do it. Boring, really boring stuff about whether yeah. we really wanted to do it. Um, and that was it. So there was no interview. They just gave us the job. Um, <clears throat> well, you'd already worked for them, so they knew, they knew what you were capable of. They knew, they knew we could do it. And um, uh, we were both trainee. We, 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 we were on a casual contract, so that we were paid weekly um, up until from, basically from July to October. Adam went into the into the film assisting side, which is what I really wanted to do. I ended oh, up... Oh, this sounds like the end of a friendship here, Paul. No, no, no. no <laughs> it was just... Adam's is still, he's, he's a, he's still a pal of mine. He, in fact, he's just, he's just messaged me on Facebook. Um, <laughs> um, and... Um, I hope you told him you're talking about him. No. <laughs> and... Um, uh, and I ended up doing, I went into a thing called video transfer, which was this new thing that they'd developed. Um, because right. basically, 
up until 1988 at the BBC, um, 87, 88, you had the film unit and you had VT. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. You had film or videotape. Film or videotape. There was no crossover. And Sony, in their infinite wisdom, were developing lightweight portable cameras, um, PFC cameras, portable single cameras, um, and previously news had used an electronic camera and a portable umatic recorder, which is a three-quarter inch video recorder. And after that, um, they developed Betacam. And Betacam, basically what happened is they, they lost the VHS Betamax war with JVC. Mm. And, and they were left with millions of Betamax tapes, which lasted anywhere from um, two hours to, th to just over three hours. Um, they were L500s or L750 tapes. They had millions of these things. And they didn't know what to do with them. They couldn't just throw them away, but they, but they weren't selling them anywhere. Yeah. And so they developed a broadcast format to suit the same size tape except your L500, which ran for two hours, to get to be broadcast quality had to, be, had to run a lot faster. Yeah, so an, yeah. L500, an L500 tape became a 20-minute tape, and wow. an, L, an L750 became a 32-minute tape. Um, and, um, and that's how Betacam was born, and then, it, and then they, it was so successful because it was one cassette in a camera, component video instead of PAL video, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it suddenly, it suddenly revolutionised, um, uh, if you like, news, news gathering. And, and then they realised that if they developed the format a bit more, they could improve the quality and you might be able to use it for drama. And eventually All Creatures Great and Small was shot on it and uh, a series that I was two series I was an assistant editor on, um, Chalkface, a John Godber series about schools, yeah. um, and another, another midweek drama series called Specials, which um, Martin Cochran from Caves of Androzani was in, and also right, yeah. um, Cindy O'Callaghan, who was played the little girl in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. She was <laughs> wow. in as well. Um, and... Um, it was a great... Uh, Terry Malloy was in it as well, actually, because I'd, I'd, I would have to go down to, to the location and he played uh, a mechanic, I think. Um, and then the, uh, the, the uh, location catering bus would be there, which would be a double-decker bus, and often you'd, I'd be sitting at the same table with Terry and Martin just having my lunch, you know, just <laughs> getting on with it. Um, so, um, so, 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 what happened then was, was there was this crossover between the film, the film unit, and, vid, and VT, and inevitably, um, I ended up being an assistant, a, a film assistant. Except I was, uh, and I was doing, I was still working on film, a little bit of film, Howard's Way, as I said, and Laughter of God, but. Um, uh, but only in kind of a, a, quite a junior role. Uh, what they really wanted me to do was be a dubbing editor, which is a, effectively a, a sound editor. Yeah. Track laying, building up the soundtrack for 
electronic dramas, which I did on a, a time-coded quarter-inch tape. Um, so I would build up the soundtrack over, I don't know, four or five reels of, of um, quarter-inch, and then I would supervise the sound mix, and the director would come in for the final, the final sound mix um, for all of those dramas. And um, well, effectively, you kind of had your foot in the door at the start of a bit of a revolution in the way television's made there, didn't you? Well, yeah. I mean, this was this was before um, electronic uh, video editing, or not electronic, should I say, but digital yeah, video yeah. editing. So, um, uh, I mean, the, the other things I was trying, I mean, I was trained to use the two-inch video machine so I could make transfers for teleaddicts. Um, I was still transmitting TV programmes like uh, Country File and Top Gear on one-inch tape. Um, I'd regularly do the Thursday night Top Gear transmission from the VPR6 in multi-format area. Um, <coughs> And those programmes, even though they were network programmes, it was networked on BBC Two and, you know, there were, I don't know, eight million people watching it. Um, there was still just me and the tape in a, in a little room somewhere <laughs> listening to a guy in London saying, play, or run VT, in fact. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's amazing so, to think now. I mean, you know, yeah. it, just, it just sounds like such a, sounds like such a cottage industry kind of a thing, really. Yeah, I, I, there was one. Um, one of the other things I did regularly was the um, the regional news. Yeah, yeah. Um, where you would have you'd basically A and B roll the the stories, so that um, you had enough time between stories to be able to change tapes because each yeah. story was on a was on an individual tape. You better better perhaps explain the difference between an A and a B roll. Well. Um, it was basically two machines. Yeah, yeah. So you had, you had an A machine and a B machine. Oh, right. With two, yeah, different yeah. with two different operators. And each operator would have their own set of tapes according to the running order. Um, and you'd play yours. And then in the studio, they would introduce the next story. And B would be playing theirs while you were swapping so, tapes over to play. Slot. Exactly, yeah. to get the next one. But, but quite often, um, there'd be a national news story uh, being edited um, at Pebble Mill. Right. And on one occasion, I was booked to, um, to take the, the, the top six o'clock news story, which was being edited in, in our edit suite, and to play it down the line to Television Centre. Yeah. They would then record it their end. And then when the six o'clock news started, they would transmit it from there. But it got so, so delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed that in the end, I, I just spoke to the, uh, the comms people um, in London because I had an open talk back to them. And I just said, look, there's, no, there's going to be no time. By the time the tape gets here, we'll be, we'll be on air for the six o'clock news. So I may as well just transmit it from here straight into the programme. <laughs> and they said, yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, you laugh, but this, these were the kind of decisions that you had to make. Well, yeah. I tell you what, if you've ever seen broadcast news, you know, that, have, you, have you ever seen broadcast news? But, you know, that I is, have seen it, yeah. Yeah, that's what you're talking about, essentially. 
Well, it's nothing compared to some of the things that we got up to. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I can tell you stories about the clothes show. You <laughs> make your hair stand on end. But, well, go um, on then. Do. Well, I'll finish no, this story no, no. first. So, so, um, so basically, um, it got closer and closer and closer. And eventually, uh, it got with a minute to go before the six o'clock news. And I was on the open talkback, which, which, which was actually on a telephone receiver. And suddenly I couldn't hear them. It went oh. dead. So there was no way for them to hear me, um, for, 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 for me to hear them cue me to run the tape. And then the tape came in and the BBC Globe had appeared on the off-air monitor. And I said to the producer, I can't hear them. I'm not going to be able to hear the cue. I'm going to have to do it by eye and I'm going to have to tell them that. I'm hoping they can hear me. And so I said to them, um, uh, I'm really sorry. There's something wrong with my receiver, my talkback receiver. You might be able to hear me. I don't know if you can. But if you can, I'll take a visual cue. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so I had my, and I said, oh, and normally you'd run from a five second start. And I said, and because I'll take a visual cue, I'm going to run it on a one second start. It's on beta cam, so it'll, it'll lock up straight away. Yeah, yeah. So, and you, I was explaining this down the line to someone who I didn't know if they could hear me. And then the news started, whatever, and, and the, the producer was standing there biting his nails. And I, and, and I looked round, <laughs> and I can see it now, and there were five editors looking through the door, through the window <laughs> in the door, at me. <laughs> um, <laughs> And um, uh, and I and I wound the the, uh, the the tape forward on the clock, and then Peter Sissons appeared uh, uh, and introduced the story, and and he said, uh, and this our report from such and such a reporter in Birmingham, and he tilted his head forward as he said <laughs> Birmingham, and I hit play, and wow. that was the visual cue that I took. And it will work perfectly. Jesus, that is, uh, well, it, that's not really surprising, but it's surprising. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think in 1993, I think it was, we were doing, I was booked to transmit the British Fashion Awards, which was edited and produced and edited by the Clothes Show team. Yeah. And um, the format, actually, it must, no, it must have been 1991, because it was on one-inch tape. Yeah. And um, I went into the to the edit and said, "Are you? Cl I don't suppose you're close yet." It was about an hour to go before it was on air. I think it was being shown at it was half hour show. And I think it was being shown at half past eight. Yeah. And um, they said, um, "I I don't think you're going to have it. I think we're going to transmit it from in here." Uh, and I said, oh, okay. So I said, well, what, what, shall I do a PSB then? And they said, yeah, that's a good idea, which basically meant um, uh, I would record and make an off-air recording. It's actually not off-air. It's, off, it's basically off the, directly off the, yeah, uh, yeah. the cubicle output. But the reason I'd, I'd said, shall I make a, a PSB, is because the reason they couldn't give me the tape is because... They were still editing it with an hour to go. There was two edit suites editing it. One was doing the first 
half of the programme and the other edit suite was doing the second half of the programme. Um, I think the first half had been finished, they lifted the sound off and it was being mixed in the, uh, the, the cipher room. Yeah. But they'd worked out that they weren't going to have enough time to lay the sound back to the tape before they had to transmit it. So the quarter inch sound was, was going to be separate to the one inch tape. But the situation with part two, the second half of it, and also because it's on two different tapes, they'd have to do a live switch over between the two tapes. And in the end, when they were, mi when they were mixing, this, was, this is all possible. This was stuff that they used to do all the time. So, it, you know, it was bit belt and braces, but yeah. they, that's what they did. Yeah. Um, and um, then they, went, they, they took the, uh, the pictures in to mix the second half of the sound. Um, and it was, it was being mixed by a dubbing mixer called Dave Bormba, who, if you're into Doctor Who, um, he was the grams operator on the moon base. Right. And um, <laughs> so, yes, it's about time we mentioned Doctor Who, eh? Yes, why not? <laughs> and, um, and basically, the, um, the, they'd, to get the sound into the, into the, to be mixed, um, they not only had to lift the sound off, but they had to lift the pictures off onto a U-matic, a time-coded U-matic, which was used to lock up the pictures. Yeah. And it had the same time code. They, you copy the picture, you copied a rough mix of the sound, and you copied the same time code, and that time code was, was used to lock up the sound machine. And then when you play your final mix back, it synced up perfectly with your master. Mm. So, um, so basically, um, they lifted it all off, they started mixing it, but then the umatic machine broke with the tape still in it. Ah. So it's, it's now about half an hour to go before they start transmitting the programme and they're only four minutes into 15 minutes of the second half with no pictures. So there was this mad rush where they had to get that pneumatic machine out, get the uh, pneumatic machine from the dubbing theatre next door, plug it all in and find a tape with the same time code on that they could at least lock up all the different machines to, so they could mix the picture, mix the sound. So the only tape that they had, which had the correct time code on, that they they could just let instantly lay their hands on, was an episode of All Creatures Great and Small. So they mixed the British Fashion Awards to Peter Davison and Robert Hardy <laughs> with arms up cows' backsides, um, and then by this stage, just as they were finishing, they started transmitting part one. Blimey. Pictures on one inch with sound on quarter inch syncing up using time code to the uh, to the master master picture tape, um, and of course that meant that they had to have uh, they had to live switch the pictures and they had to manually mix the sound over between the two tapes. In fact, there were four tapes running: two wow. picture and two sound. Yeah. So, and that was kind of a. I mean, I could give you a whole list of these. I mean, 
I don't think anyone's really that interested in them, but um, uh, but they were fascinating. Other people sitting at home have no idea. They just think television appears by magic in the corner of the room. In 1995, I I did the Close Show show, which was basically the Scottish version of Close Show Live. Yeah. um, From the SECC in Glasgow, and we edited it at BBC Glasgow, and we were still rewinding the tape, having just laid back the sound, while they were counting from 10 in London. Crikey. That was, that was hairy. <laughs> Jesus. But, but Paul, from, being, uh, from working in the editing suites, what was your first job as a director stroke producer? Well, it was the clothes show. Oh, right. And, and basically, um, uh, the clothes show, if, if you were brought up in, in the, um, in the teenage, if you're a teenager yeah. in the 80s, it started in 1986 and it, and it ran to 1998. And um, it was possibly the top rated um, factual entertainment programme on the BBC at the time. It and, was one of those um, things that absolutely everybody watched, whether they had any interest in fashion or not. I yeah, watched so, it. I watched it and I had no interest whatsoever. Yes, but you watched it because you wanted to see... Attractive women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and young girls watched it because they wanted to know about fashion. and Yeah. Older ladies watched it because they might learn something about fashion or they might think, well, maybe I could get away with that and then realise, I don't think so. And the yeah. dads, of course... Well, had to watch it. Yeah, everyone watched it. I mean, it, it, I would say it was the perfect family show, but everyone had a different reason for watching it. Yeah, and and I was an editor um, or an assistant editor, in fact, on the Close Show and various other programs at that time. But the Close Show was one of them. Um, and um, as an assistant editor, my job was to uh, control the vision mixer and also uh, the DVE, which Digital Video Effects Unit, called a Charisma. And it was a, like a 48-button keyboard. And I was the guy that, uh, that programmed um, different shapes into the machine and bounced. I'd turn things into balls and bounce them around and yeah. do, pa- do page turns and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but, but that's where a lot of the creativity in, t- in, in putting texture into the into the into the clothes show items came from. I mean, it yeah, was, yeah, it was one of the first kind of magazine programs, and it, and and each item had to have a different kind of feel to it. In, ter- um, in terms of an analogy that maybe it's like having different coloured pages and different fonts and formats in a magazine, something like that. Yeah, something that it gives was, it colour throughout the. That's episode. right. It, it was a magazine show. It yeah. was probably the, the the earliest example of of a magazine show, and it was the brainchild of um, a guy called Roger Castles, um, who had done things like Pebble Mill at One. He'd had Jeff Banks on as a guest on Pebble at One, and then created the Clothes Show and got Jeff back to present the Clothes Show. And yeah. so, um, some of the directors that I was working with on on the Clothes Show had said to me you could direct this show. You've got really good ideas and um, you're really inventive. Um, and the producers know which directors are strong and which, and which aren't. And they know when things are being saved in the edit. 
and there was a lot of saving in the edit. I mean, the Chloe show won BAFTA awards for editing. It never won any awards for directing or producing. So, um, so I went to see Roger Castles and, and said, look, have you got any advice for me? And he said, look, um, the only advice I can give you is apply for the job we've got advertised at the moment, uh, which are, are for directors for the next yeah. of the Chloe show. And you better do it now because it, it's half past three, it's Friday, the closing date is next <laughs> Tuesday, and it's a bank holiday on Monday. Right. So, um, so I got my finger out and put in my application. My boss went white, but still signed it because your boss had to sign to agree to let you apply for this. Right, yeah. And I did an interview and I didn't get the job. But then they, they came back to me and said, look, the reason you didn't get the job, I mean, it was actually Roger came to me, he said, you didn't get the job because um, you did a brilliant board, a brilliant interview, but you've got no experience as a director. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you an attachment as a director for, right. for um, a month on the clothes show. And you're going to do it in November. And this was 1994. And November came and went and it got pushed back. And I, I actually did it in February. But by that stage, because um, they felt they kept, they'd strung me along a bit, they said, it's not going to be for four weeks. It's going to be for eight weeks. So I finished editing the clothes show on <coughs> Friday night in January or early February, and I was a director on the closed show the following Monday. Wow. Um, and they said to me, don't worry, your first film isn't going to be for another two weeks. You'll have plenty of time pre to prepare for it. And, and this was on the Monday morning. And at half past five, they rang up and said, you're directing with Brenda Imanus and um, Anthony Muscolo, the head of Tony and Guy in Covent Garden on Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> so, uh, and and that's what I did. And I I wrote a script and um, went to London and met the crew and Brenda and made the film. And it was shown the following Sunday. Um, wow. So it was a baptism of fire. I did my four minute close show film with no training as a director. But I've got to say, Paul, I know you well enough to not be in the slightest bit surprised about any of this because you are meticulous. You're one of these people who, if you've got a job to do, you will make sure you do the job, but not just make sure you do the job. Your brain will be, you know, fractured working on every little detail all at the same time to make sure it's done properly and done, done as well as it can be. Yeah, so I none mean, of this surprises me at all. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, you know, you, the thing is that, that it, it was a, an absolutely fantastic experience. I mean, it was kind of the top rated, you know, it was the best programme on telly to work on as a director. Yeah. Um, and it was, the, it was the start of great things for me. Um, I did that. I, then I did my first big um, story, which, which was, um, uh, it was a film about turning recycled plastic bottles into fleeces. And there was a fashion video that, that, went, that went into that. So, I mean, that was really interesting because it was a bit of manufacturing, it was a bit of design, and it was a fashion video. Um, and that went down really well. Uh, and I was able to use that plan for while by Plastic Bertrand in it and um, all sorts of other 
bizarre plastic-related bits of music. <laughs> uh, and then they said, oh, we want you to be second director at London Fashion Week. And that wow. was a big deal. Um, and so um, I, I did Joe, the Joe Casey Hayford show that year. Princess Diana came in for that. We had, um, I did Alan, Alexander McQueen's first show in the tents. I had to film backstage with Alexander McQueen. Wow. Before he was really well known. Um, a lot of those kind of things. And then the next year, then they said, uh, we, you did a brilliant job. Uh, we'd like you to come back on a proper attachment as a series director for the Close Show next series, which yeah. is what I did. Well, um, of course they did. And at the same time, I, I, I was doing the Five Doctor Special Edition as well. So, I was going to um, bring that up later on, yeah. Yeah, but, but that kind of happened round about that, that time. So I'd, I'd done my attachment, then I did the Five Doctors, um, and then I did uh, God as Well Live, um, and, uh, and then I was back on the Close Show as a director. Okay, we're going to have to... Sorry. Yeah, sorry, go on. Well, it was just fabulous, you know. Oh, yeah. It was great. Sorry. I was only going to say, we're going to have to, you, you know, we could talk, you know, I've looked at the list of programmes you've worked on, and I could talk about all of them, but we are not going to have time. No. But, but let's, how long was it before you were in a position whereby you could go to producers, or, you know, the money men at the BBC, and say, look, I've got an idea for a programme, and before they'd actually say yes to you? And does that happen very often, in fact? It doesn't happen very often at all. Um, you have to have really, really good ideas. Yeah. And um, I've taken a great many ideas to programme development meetings, and um, none of them have, been, have gone into production in, in the departments I've worked in. Right. Um, very often that what happens is you, 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 you have an idea and you write a treatment and you go and speak to development and you might go and work in the development area for a couple of weeks developing that idea and yeah. you come up with a treatment and then that treatment is pitched to channel controllers but usually commissioners Yeah. Uh, and then the commissioner will say, why the hell would you want to do something like that? Who came up with this? You've just wasted your time. Or, yes, I'll have that, thank you very much. I think that's a great idea. Um, twice, and I won't say what the programmes are, but twice I've put in ideas, which they've won, on one occasion they said, there's absolutely no drama in it, there's no way we're going to make that. And then a year later, it's, it's, been, on, it's been made by a different department in a different region. Um, exactly the same idea. Yeah. Uh, and you've got no say in that. Yeah, I suppose if you're into contract as well, you kind of... Well, you, you can't do anything about it. And it's interesting, yeah. since I became a freelancer, um, I've been much, much more successful in taking ideas to producers, usually to independent producers. Yeah. Um, and the thing about um, taking an idea to an independent producer is that you don't have to go through or wade through the treacle of development or development departments. This, in the, within the BBC there are so many barriers to you getting your ideas heard. Um, 
anyone from BBC Programme Development listening to this would say, that's not true, that's a lie. Well, <laughs> it's not my experience, you know. Yeah. Um, my experience is that, that it is like wading through, through um, mud waist deep. Um, whereas now I can ring up a producer that I've worked with in an indie and tell them my idea and can I come and talk to them about it? And they will tell me, they either say, yeah, that's really interesting, let's talk about it, or look, no one's interested in that at the moment. It, it, was, it was a good idea last year and it might be a good idea in two years' time, but now isn't the right time. So, but then when you do get and speak to them and develop it, then those things are taken forward um, and they're taken forward directly to the commissioner, usually not to the schedulers. Yeah. Um, and um, and that is, that's a fabulous thing. I mean, it's a, the only time I've been successful in getting new programmes commissioned was when I was the series producer of The Sky at Night. And because I was a series producer, I could bypass a lot of that and go straight to the scheduler and yeah. say, look, have you got any gaps you need filling? Like, for example, um, uh, Waters of Mars, the Doctor Who special. Yeah. Uh, I rang up and said, look, the Doctor Who special is, you know, have you got anything planned to, to do with Mars? And they said, yeah, we're going to have a Mars night. Do you want to do something? And I said, yeah, I can, I can do you um, the story of Mars uh, over the years told by the Sky at Night. We'll do it as a special. And they said, yeah, okay, great, we'll commission it. And they commissioned, BBC Four commissioned a 30-minute special. So, um, so you can do it and you can get it away, um, but... You really have to persevere if you're yeah. in BBC. You've got to you've got to work hard at it wherever you are in television because there's so much competition to get programmes on on air. But um, it's uh, it's much more difficult within the BBC unless you're something like Alan Yentob who can just oh, yeah, we're, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna make it. I think a lot of people who don't really know anything about television, though, just kind of assume that if you've got a decent idea, everybody just clamours around you and says, oh, how brilliant, let's make it. Really not the reality, is it? No. No. Of all the things that you've made, then, what would be your absolute highlights? It's usually the last thing that you <laughs> Usually. Um I guess the, the, the program I made this year uh, with Dara O'Brien and Stephen Hawking is 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 up there. Uh, has to be, and um, and because it was so high profile, you know, we had a front cover of the Radio Times. Yeah, and I shot and directed it, uh, produced it as well. Um, uh, that has definitely opened doors for me since, and um, so yeah. I mean, it, if you've got if you're a director and you've got peak time BBC One and BBC Two credits and peak time Channel Four credits as well, yeah, um, that that is a very very good calling card. Um, and if that's on, if that is at the top of your your CV, and it was on last week or the week before last or a month ago, it's very current, it's very now, and it's like, well, this guy must be good if he's getting BBC One. Yeah. BBC One peak time um, uh, obstocks. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll get him in and talk to him. And that is exactly what happens. Well, there, there's so many other things on that list of things that you've done that we could have talked about. Linda Bellingham you worked with, for example. What was she like? Oh, she was fantastic. 
Yeah. It was an interesting series I did. I've worked with her on two series. Um, in 2012, it was actually my first big job as a, free, as a freelance um, producer, director. And it was a mixture of, of my own camera work, uh, but also directing a crew. And um, th- it was 20 episodes. It was called My Tasty Travels with Linda Bellingham. Yeah. And uh, they'd already booked a director to do half of them. And they were looking for somebody else to do the other 10. And, um, and I applied for it. And I got a call when I was in a garden centre looking for paving slabs <laughs> um, from the, the series producer. And she said, oh, um, I was going through the CVs that had landed on my desk. And I was reading out the names to my exec. And when your name came up, she said, oh, yes, you should definitely call him. And I said, oh, who was that? And she told me who it was. And she, the exec, used to be my assistant producer on Real Rooms. Right. And she was also, bizarrely, she was also my producer on the very last episode of The Closed Show that was ever made, which I also directed. And, wow. Um, uh, so, of course, she said, well, he knows what he's doing. Because uh, I was... Uh, I mean, I remember when she started at the BBC as a runner on the closed show. So, um, and I was directing at the time. So she's always known me as a director throughout her career. Uh, and, I, and she was also a producer on various other things. So she basically said, look, he, he can do it. So, um, and they wanted me to start, I think, the following week. So I arrived, they confirmed it on the Thursday, and I started in Plymouth um, the following Monday. Um, and the, and the, the guy they got booked to do the other 10 episodes um, started on, was meant to start on Tuesday, and he never turned up. He got a better job, and he went off and... Oh, wow. And did that. You know, he got a job, he, really, he went off and did that. So they had to find other directors. I think I, I, did, I did all my 10 with Linda, and it, I think it took four other directors to do the other 10. But Linda was fabulous, and... Um, we got on really well. I think actors, she was an actor, actors need to have the, the confidence of yeah. the, person, the person in charge knowing what they're doing. And um, I'd been a director for almost 20 years, well, no, yeah, almost 20 years. So I'd, and I'd, you know, I've had a lot of things thrown at me as a director. I've, I've filmed in some extremely challenging situations, and this was all this program needed. It was it was a day of pre-shoots without Linda as a self-shooting director, and then two days with Linda and the crew. Um, it was for ITV, so it just needed to be. A, you know, it wasn't a lot of time to do it. It needed to be approached with military precision. Yeah. It needed careful scheduling, and that's what I did. And and you know we we we'd start at eight in the morning and we'd finish at six. Uh, sometimes we'd go over a little bit, but most of the time we'd finish at six. And I directed her, and I was her director, and she appreciated that. And she always loved the programs um, with myself and two other directors that she worked with on that show. Because we, we knew what we were doing and we got on with it and, and she did she did you know 
she wasn't wearing herself out. Yeah. Um, and like you say, with an actor, if you've got an actor who's having to present, that is a very different thing from acting, where you're working with somebody else's, well, you, where you're working with somebody else's characters. To put yourself on the screen like that can be a bit daunting for them, can it? Well, it is. And, 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 the, and the thing is, you know, the, you've got to say, as I did to her, um, don't be too actressy. Yeah. Just mm. be, just have a conversation with someone and don't, and don't kind of dress up. Yes, we want the humorous asides to camera and we want it to be a bit camp because you're driving, well, you're driving a 1961 VW camper van around the country <laughs> um, <coughs> and you can't get much more camp than that. So, um, you know, play up to it to an extent, but there's a serious element to it as well. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so we had a fabulous time and, um, and then, um, we did country another House series. Sunday, yeah. yeah, Country House. We did that as well. It could have been really good, but they put it on at eight thirty in the morning on a Sunday, and that's just a, not a good time oh, for that wow. kind of show. I, I don't know why they did that. So, um, uh, and then, like all of us, heard that she got um, cancer, yeah. which was. Um, really terrible and I spoke to her after that and we had a chat and she said look I'm going to beat this thing and mm. we exchanged lots of text texts things and um, and Toby Haydoke at the time was really wanted to speak to her um, and so I got the two of them in contact together so he could do a podcast with her yeah. and then um, and then it it all, well, it all, you know what happened, I mean. Yeah, yeah. She just lost her her fight and... Um, she went very quickly in the end, didn't she, I think? Yeah, it, it was really, it was really upsetting for all of us and, um, you know, she was genuinely, you know, you don't, you don't make friends with, with, with people in television very often and I think we, we, we did become good friends yeah. uh, with her and... Um, and Mr. Spain, Michael, um, and uh, I was meant to be at the funeral as well, and I couldn't go because I had some awful lurgy, and I just could not drive anyway. Uh. I, just, I just couldn't go, um, and I felt even worse about. I mean, the thing is, we, I couldn't do anything about her no longer being alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I really wanted to be there to to give her a send off, and I just. And that I felt even more guilty about that, but you know, we can't do it. Well, that's the way it goes sometimes. Yeah. Okay, let's brighten the uh, atmosphere up because I'm gonna. There's one thing on your list I have to ask you about. Oh yeah. That's just, well, I mentioned this just before we started recording, but I, the temptation's taken me. Paul, casualty saved my life. What the hell? Oh yeah, it was, <laughs> that was a, that was a really good um, show actually. Um, Tell was me what the, Yeah, go on. Yeah, it was a it was a it was a one hour um, special, um, and it was real life stories of people who saved somebody's life because of what they'd seen on Casualty. And <laughs> it just sounds mad. Yeah, but it was true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, um, and it was myself and another director called Mark Scott 
who um, directed the, the, the whole series. Um, and we kind of divvied up the stories between us. <clears throat> and my sound recordist was Dave Bormba, who by this stage had left the BBC and gone freelance and had decided to come become a sound recordist again. The guy that had been the grams up on <laughs> the moon base. Right, um, yeah. And uh, and we were filming on the set of Casualty, doing interviews and various other behind the scenes bits and pieces. Um, this would have been 2004, I think. I remember I was filming. I was filming it. Um, I was on the set of Casualty the week that the Doctor Who episode, The Day of Armageddon, was sent back. Oh, right. And I remember standing on... I was on the Casualty set and I called Clayton Hickman yeah. on the Thursday and said, yeah, you can, you can, you can publish. Wow. <laughs> I said, it's going to be announced this afternoon, but you can publish it. Um, and, um, yeah, and I, I called Ian Levine as well at the same time. He just burst into tears. Wow, it's his uh, favourite story after all. Yeah, he was very emotional about it when I told him what the episode was. Yeah, but, I bet. but yeah, it was an interesting programme. And um, I, I did, I, there were two reconstructions that I was particularly pleased with. Um, one was a stabbing. Uh, and then there was another, which was um, uh, a drowning child had drowned but was brought back and I was able to cast actors for the first time and direct actors and write a script of the and reconstruct the story as it was right and yeah. um uh and it was it was fabulous really and you know we had we had makeup and we had prosthetics and it was it was a fab fabulous thing to work on and I got to meet Simon McCorkindale <laughs> oh um, really yeah, because we interviewed him. Wow. And, of course, of uh, course, he was in Casualty, though. Was in casualty, There's me yeah. being stupid. And um, Robert Lindsay yeah. did the voiceover for us, yeah. Wow. So it was great. It was really good. It was a nice thing to work on. Yeah. I bet it was. Look, one more TV thing before we move on. But even then, we're only moving... One more TV thing, and it is this. You were also, unless I've done my maths wrong... You were also John Craven's last producer before he retired, is that right? No. Oh, I've done my maths wrong then. But you were John Craven's producer on Country File before he left there. Yeah, I I I was his producer director for yeah. his last his last um Country File when it was a more Sunday morning Country File. Oh, that's right. I'd forgotten all about that. Yeah, so um, I I did, and basically, if you were a director on Countryfile, you either did feature stories, yeah. or you were, or you were the location director for that week. Right. Yeah. So if you were the location for the director that week, you'd be working with John, and you'd have three stories which you'd film over two days, which tied the whole program together in yeah. one location, or in an area of the country. Yeah, yeah. So on so that particular week I was I was acting as the location producer director. The following week I was that was for that was John's last one as yeah. the morning show. The following week I was prepping um 
for the next episode, the, the following episode of Country File, which was the, going to be the second episode and became the second episode with Matt Baker and Julia Brampery. And then I was directing Matt and Julia for the second episode um, of Country File as a peak time Sunday night show. That's astonishing, really, to, you know, to have been there to oversee quite a radical change in the way the programme was being presented, really. I mean, not yeah. just it's not just the fact that the presentation team's changed, but you've also completely changed, you know, potentially your audience from what time of the day it's being shown. Were, were you sort of... When you were doing that, was that like a big part of your thinking, we're working for the evening now, we're working for peak time, we've got to do yes. it differently? Yeah. Yeah, it, it was, but... but um... That didn't necessarily mean that there were going to be huge changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the the stories, the type of stories that we chose were, were a little bit different. Um, the There was a big kerfuffle at the time about um, uh, uh, sexism and ageism. Um, the, the whole Miriam O'Reilly court case um, happened at the same time. Around that time, because of course, not you know, some of the men like John yeah, went, yeah. went to the series, but none of the women. Um, so not even Michaela Strachan. So and they were brought in Julia and Ellie Harrison and um, some other people that have gone by the wayside since. Mm. So um, you know, the the looming court case was a bit <coughs> of a weird, weird thing as well. Um, and it was all it was quite difficult for us because um I'd worked with Miriam. I think I did Miriam's last country file story. Um uh, or one of them anyway. Um and I enjoyed working with her. Um but I really did feel that, that, that the 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 BBC just didn't defend themselves over the accusation of yeah. of um of ageism. Um, and um, I know the, the case went in her favour, but I, I just cannot agree with the, the end result. I just thought it was, um, you know, she was a freelancer. Well, the BBC have kind of, I mean, uh, the way I see it, they seem to have a history of just taking things on the chin, don't they? Well, in fact, they're taking something on the chin at the moment, aren't they, to do with the uh, well, licence fee? Well, kind of. I mean, I, I can't really talk about that because no, I don't know no, about no. it. But, but I, but, but they're certainly in, with that particular court, court case. They just had no balls. Hmm. Madness. Right. Let's cheer up again. I've got. Okay. And I promise we will talk about Doctor Who at some point. <laughs> but I have got two more things, and one of them, well, this is probably mad as it sounds. This is probably the most successful thing you've ever done, and I'm just going to say two words: bottom fluff. Well, I don't think it was the most successful, but... Well, in uh, certain was, terms, perhaps. Yes, I mean, it, it certainly is the thing that's made the most money. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, Bottom Fluff wasn't my idea. Bottom Fluff um, was a 20-minute internal-only, in BBC internal yeah. um, video that Steve Roberts and Chris Pepper, one of his pals, put together when when they were basically board engineers mm. um, and uh, and basically um, 
Steve could see the studio output at bottom when it was live in the studio, so he made his own recordings to put together the outtakes. I think they must have seen the studio recording of, or the studio, the live studio of Bottom Series One, realised it was really funny and there was a lot of stuff going on when the when the when the cameras yeah, yeah. were you know when they were rehearsing and what. And so he'd made his own recordings to put together this thing, and it was twenty minutes long for Series Two only. And uh, he sent me a copy, and I, I thought it was fabulous. Yeah. And um, and so I sent my tape to. Sue Kerr at BBC Video and said, look, you really need to see this because it, it's, it's really funny. Um, and she agreed and she said, but it's only 20 minutes long. And I said, well, look, they've done three series. Um, it, it didn't happen immediately because, because I think, I can't remember what year series two was, but I, I didn't meet Steve till 92. Yeah. And... I, I can't remember. I don't, he didn't give me a copy of Bottom Fluff straight away. So, no. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, I, 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 it was 96 that it came out. And it was after The Five Doctors, which was 95. So, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. And um, um, I said, look, I think, we can, I think we could probably do an hour. That's twenty minutes. There's been three series. If yeah, it's twenty yeah. minutes each, you know, and there's and there are the scenes. There are scenes, deleted scenes, you know, or scenes that have been cut in half. We could put the whole scenes back in. It would be great fun. So, she agreed that there was enough content, and she said, "Okay, I'll speak to Steve." So she spoke to Steve, and she and then she rang me up and said, "Look, um, I've spoken to Steve." He's got great ideas. He thinks he can make it work, but he's got no experience as producing this kind of content. And you have. Yeah. You did the Five Doctors for me, and you're a producer, director on the Clothes Show. You're a BBC director, so you can do it. So I want you to 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 produce it with him. Um, and so that's what we did, and um, we put it together, and we had to get permission from. Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson, and originally we wanted to record some additional um, links with it. Yeah. And they said, no, we're not going to do any more recording. Um, and there are two conditions. You can do it. Aid said, you can only do it if I think it's good value for the fans. Right. And Rick said, you can only do it if I can have final say on the cut. Right. So we agreed to it because my view was it's really funny. It's definitely going to be great value. We made it. And, um, and then we sent them an offline VHS of yeah. it. And we wrote a letter, myself and Steve, and the letter basically said, we're fans. We think this is really funny. Um, the BBC wanted it to be an hour long. And, it, and we can make it an hour long, but it's not as funny at an hour. Yeah, yeah. It's 57 minutes, 35 seconds, and it's funny at that length, and it's not, funny, it's not as funny at 60 minutes. And people, you might not think that two, two minutes, 25 seconds makes a lot of difference, but it does. It makes a huge difference yeah and so 
And the BBC were really disappointed that we worldwide were dis- so disappointed that we couldn't make it an hour, and, and, and they insisted, and we said no. We insisted back, basically. No, it won't be. And um, about a week later, um, the message came back from the agents, which was no changes. Go ahead. Brilliant. And, um, and that then, became. Oh, go on, sorry. Well, and, and then Sue Kerr watched it. And she said, of course, we're going to have to bleep it because, you know, the BBC, there's never been a BBC video on it that's used the C word. And if we, if we use it, it's going to be an 18th certificate right away. And we said, you cannot bleep any of it. Make it an 18th certificate. You'll sell more. <laughs> yeah. And... In the fair play to her, she listened to what we said and she agreed, and that's what they did. And then they got a comedy copywriter to write the blurb on the back, which included the F word in the copy on the back with the U and the C starred out, which is unheard of on a BBC video. And then they booked um, they booked ad um, adverts above the urinals in motorway service stations advertising it. So they, they went to a huge amount of trouble, gave it a rubbish cover, which we all hated. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and also they, they, they charged fourteen ninety nine for it, which we thought was really annoying because the budget that she'd given us was £20,000 and we'd only spent twelve. Um, and um, at the same time, they'd had to buy the rights to a straight-to-video version of They Think It's All Over. And that had cost them a quarter of a million pounds. And they were selling that at twelve ninety nine. Right. So, um, but they got it. They did, they did a ride out of it. Oh, yes. Yeah. So um, They Think It's All Over did outsell Bottom, bottom Fluff. Oh, really? Did it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, they, right. made, they made an absolute fortune on it. But Bottom, bottom Fluff sold... Um, just under a quarter of a million copies in six weeks. So it had a turnover about, of about four and a half million pounds. And it made the BBC annual report. So, You yes, can't really it, argue with that. No, I mean, it, you can't. It, it was the two biggest, biggest sellers that year, really. And I've still got my, my platinum sales award from the British Video Association for sales in excess of one million pounds. Wow. Which I've, I've put in the toilet. And just to bring it right back full circle, the last thing I'm going to ask you about before we get on to Doctor Who is also Edge of Darkness. And that is because you did the documentary for the DVD. But this wasn't a commission. You had to go in and battle for this, didn't you? Yeah. Um, It it was the the thing that I really had to battle for was was I, Claudius. Oh, right. Which I'd done... done, um, in 2002 and I really pushed hard for that and they I'd worn them down basically and they finally agreed and we did that and and they said in the end they decided we're not going to make any money out of I Claudius but it's something that we should be doing and therefore we will do it mm. whatever it costs and then then I told them how much I wanted, and they said, "Okay, well, you know when we said whatever it costs, 
Um, so I had, to, I had to rein in my, my ambition a bit. But I did get everybody um, that, I really, that I really felt had to be on there. Yeah. So all, of the, all of the actors that played the emperor, uh, the various emperors, um, Derek Jacobi and George Baker, um, John Hurt, yeah, yeah. Brian Blessed and um, Christopher Biggins. And um, and Sean Phillips, who played Livia, and the director. Uh, we even got Maggie Tyzak in there as well. Um, and but the, the one person that we, I really wanted, who who was the first person to agree, and of all the people that agreed, didn't take part in the end because basically, his agent got the dates mixed up, was Patrick oh. Stewart. Um, I really wanted to because he had such a fantastic part. Um, Sir James yeah. in uh, in our Claudius, so we did our Claudius. It was very successful. They did make a lot of money on it, actually. Yeah, I was going to say um, that was one of those ones that probably actually surprised people, I suppose. Yeah, I mean it did, uh, and and then I pushed Edge of Darkness, and they really hammered me on the budget on that. They said, "Yeah, you can do it, but you haven't got as much money as even our Claudius." Um, and they really hammered me on the budget. They didn't want to do a full restoration. But I pushed and pushed and pushed, and uh, I finally got the dock and additional content. And then we were doing the the commentary to the Curse of Fenric while I was almost finished doing Edge of Darkness. Yeah. And, and Mark Ayres arrived at um, Ace Editing where we were doing the, recording that commentary. It was Nicholas Parsons and Sophie that day and Sylvester, I think. And, uh, and he brought with him six quarter inch tapes and he said, there you go, there's your music for Edge of Darkness. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and he'd found them uncatalogued on a shelf at Windmill Road on the worldwide shelf. Wow. Never been input into the system. And, and they were copies of 16mm magnetic stripe film. So they weren't brilliant quality. But, but even so. It, it was the clean music. And so we and did a bit of work. that is a famous score as well. Yeah, yeah. And, In fact, that's uh, the kind of thing that you'd have thought would have been put out as a record, to be honest. Well, they, they, they did bring out a 12-inch EP. Oh, right. Um, but um, it would have been nice if they'd done the whole album. And uh, I discovered later, because um, I did an interview with Michael Kamen for Edge of Darkness um, mm. at his house in Notting Hill. And I told him that we'd found the music, but it wasn't very good quality. And he got very excited by that. And he said, look, I'd love to have copies for, for yeah, myself. Yeah. And I said, well, look, I've, I've got a, spe- a set of spare um eight tracks so I'll just give you a set if you can play the eight tracks he said, yeah I've got one I've got a da88 here I can play it so um, I'd, I'd agreed to give him the my spare eight tracks of the uh, of the, of the mixes um, having warned him that a for the most part they were only mono we didn't have stereo versions of them mm. which was, was was a big disappointment and that they were quite hissy um, and then it was fantastic because then he played. He played me a bit of the theme to Edge of Darkness on his piano. Um, oh. Although, as we, which was fantastic, it was great to have yeah, a yeah, composer yeah. play. 
Um, although what the shame of it was, of course, that he he actually he actually couldn't play it that well because um, I I actually had to speak to his agent who was there nursemaiding the whole thing. Um, in fact, it wasn't his agent; it was a PR guy. I said, "Is is Michael ill?" And he kind of looked a bit a bit deflated, but realised he couldn't really dodge the question, and he said, "Yeah." yeah He's, we haven't told anyone, and no one knows this, but he's got um, he's got MS. He's got multiple sclerosis. Oh wow! Um, <clears throat> in fact, I don't think it's that well known that he had MS, but um, because of course, about three three or four months after the DVD came out, he had a massive. He got back from America, had a massive heart attack, and he died. Right. Um, which was. Um, extremely sad because he was he possibly is the nicest person that, that, that I've ever met a uh, very generous guy just for that one morning that we filmed with him yeah um, it was uh, it was a wonderful experience just to just to meet him and chat with him and yeah and he was a big part of the success of that as well he was yeah um, and also all the Lethal Weapon films and he wrote um yeah, everything I do, uh, I do for you. That you know, one of the biggest-selling records of all of time. All time. Um, <clears throat> and uh, and the music to Brazil and um, uh, yeah, he had a big career. And, yeah, it's incredible. Um, and one of my other favourite series, uh, Band of Brothers. So, oh, he did you know, that as well. Yes, he did, yeah, didn't he? I'd forgotten yeah. that. Yeah. So, so a, a great loss, really. Um, and he was fifty-eight. You know, I mean, it's. No age at all. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. A great shame. Right. But that, I mean, that's the brilliant thing, actually, about working in this industry. Is that you can get that. Well, you, you get to meet amazing people that most people, and work with people that most people only ever go up to and sign autographs with, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. They get, their, they get their autographs, or they get a, these days they get a selfie with them. Yeah. And you're directing these people. Um, and not only that, you're preserving a record of their thoughts. Trying to, yeah. And 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 then also you, you know, you go to places that 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 um, a lot of people will never get to. I mean, uh, everyone can go at Blackpool Tower, um, but you get to a certain height at Blackpool Tower, and there's another gate and a set of spiral steps, and it's padlocked, and you're not allowed to go up. Right, and I've been up there three times this year, <laughs> filming for the BBC. So, um, and it's a great view, I can tell you, because all the all the safety netting is gone, and you, you get a clear view. Yeah. Um, so you know, doing things like that and, and doing it with, as in that particular case, with Anton Dubeck and Len Goodman, is great fun. You know, and um, it's. Uh, you, you know, and also, you know, spending a week on an oil platform in the middle of the North Sea for a week is not something that most people would ever get a chance to do. That that's right. Yeah. You have to be an oil rig worker to do that kind of thing. Um, and but also knowing that you're taking your life in your hands, you know, because you're flying, you're flying in a in a helicopter, um, an eighteen seater helicopter, so it's heavy, f with a limited fuel supply. 150 miles over the open sea. Wow. To 
a very, very, very small heli deck. Yeah. So, you know, Ouch. and you've just done your and you've just done your survival training, and you're wearing a survival suit, and you're told if you go in the water, five wow. minutes tops. Nice. Okay, I'm going to brighten things up again then, just briefly. Who of all the people you've worked and you know, with looking at also people like Esther Rance and you've worked with. Of all the people you've worked with, who has impressed you the most? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I would have to say, just for being really enthusiastic and, and, and a consummate um, professional presenter, yeah. and I love working with presenters, um, Jeff Banks. Right. Uh, wow. A lot of people won't know who Jeff Banks is, but Jeff Banks was, I guess, the lead or senior presenter on the clothes show. Yeah. And you know, he was a he was a great he was a brilliant guy. You know, um, uh, and still is a brilliant guy. <laughs> I haven't I haven't worked with him though since about 1997. So you know, it's it's difficult to yeah put yeah. my finger on it. I guess the other person who who really, really did impress me with was Pete McCarthy. Um, Pete McCarthy was a radio and TV broadcaster. Yeah. And he wrote the books, The Road to McCarthy and McCarthy's Bar. Um, and he was a comedian and he was funny and uh, he was a brilliant writer. And um, I worked on a series called um, Tracks with him. Yeah. And uh, which was a kind of a, if you like, an out and about version of Country File for BBC Two in the mid nineties, and um, I remember it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of one of the films I did was uh, was about the history of the tent, <laughs> um, and I'd written a I'd written a script. And in those days, because you've got a day and a half to film, um, you turn up in it's all it's only eight minutes, and you film an eight minute film in a day and a half. So you've got quite a leisurely amount of time to, to shoot I and mean, you can't yeah. rest on your laurels, but you can, you can be doing stuff while the presenter is getting the script in his head. And I'd written the script um, knowing that he would change it. Right, and yeah. I, I, I had to introduce the, um, uh, 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 a, uh, one, of, one of our interviewees, our lead interviewee for, for this film. So I wrote um, something like uh, uh, Hazel Constance is the honorary archivist um, for the Camping and Caravanning Club um, uh, here with her husband, Pat. She's had 40 years experience of getting it up outdoors, <laughs> which is what I wrote. Okay. So, so, so I wrote, I wrote that and, and Pete, I gave it the script to Pete and Pete was reading the script and he got to that bit and he, and he laughed and he said, um, look, I'm sorry, Paul, I don't do puns. He said, leave it with me, come back to me in about half an hour and I'll, I'll have something else. Uh, so we came to, to do that section. He said, I've got it now. Uh, let's just record it. Uh, I said, I said, I said, look, read it to me first. He said, no, 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 let's just do it. Um, um, so and he and he said I, I don't I can't remember it word for word but he said something like um, uh, Hazel Constance has been uh, 
looking after the nation's tent-related archaeology for the past 40 years, whilst husband Pat bangs the pegs in. <laughs> Which was much funnier and uh, a lot cleverer than my poor attempt at humour. Wow. And that's why, you know, that's why you've got those people doing those things on the BBC. And, yeah. and it's very, I mean, I, we, I mean, the BBC have got, have got a, many years of getting just the right people, many years of experience getting the right people mm. in, doing the right programmes at the right time and making it work. And, um, and that was a very minor example of, of one of those occasions. Um, and it's fabulous when you can get to work with people like that. And also, he was a good sport. I did another film where, um, for that that series about Fibonacci numbers, and um, I had a bit of a falling out with the producer because she kept changing my music, having told me that she liked it after I came out of the edit. So I had no choice in the in the music changes that she was making to my films, and it really annoyed me. Um, and so I, I. I've been given this story to do about Fibonacci numbers. Yeah. And um, the uh, my researcher was Sebastian Barfield, who's now a big producer, top producer in Bristol, BBC Bristol. And um, Sebastian said, "Okay, so what props do we need for for the film?" I said, "Okay, well, well, okay, we need um, we're going to need a double bed." And he he said, "What do we need a double bed for? We're filming it in a field." And I said, "Yeah, we're going to need a double bed and a mattress." And we're going to need a bedspread to go on the bed. And the bedspread has got to have flowers on. And the flowers on the bedspread have got to have the correct number of petals <laughs> of the Fibonacci number sequence. Yeah. So it's, it's zero, one, two, three, five, seven, thirteen, twenty, and so on. The, the petals, it's really important. Otherwise, don't we, we, we may as well not make the film if you can't get a bedspread that's got the Fibonacci number sequence in petals on it. Basically, I was being a bit of an arse. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then he said, OK, what else do you need? And I said, well, we're going to need a bedside table, an alarm clock, a metronome, and a giant comb, and some pyjamas for Pete to wear. And he said, and he wrote it all down. And in the background, um, the producer, who'd given me a hard time about the music, was chuckling with laughter, saying, I wonder what you, I wonder what he's doing. It's, this is all a big joke. And I wasn't joking. Well, I kind yeah, of yeah. was, but I wasn't, you know, because I wanted all this stuff, but it, I wanted it because I was having fun. Um, and he said, is there anything else you need? I said, yes, I need eight uh, plaster rabbits. <laughs> He said, okay, I'll see what I can do. He said, is there anything else you need? And I said, I said, yes. I need um, a six foot tall um, white rabbit outfit. And it's got to have pointy ears. And if we can't make them stand up, there's no point in doing the film. So we'll need to get some coat hangers so we can fashion the ears so that the ears stand up. And he said, what do we need that for? And I said, oh, look, I'll tell you about that, like, that later. And then he said, who's going to be wearing the costume? And I looked at him and I said, you are. <laughs> <laughs> and 
<clears throat> and the, see, the thing is that, that the... Uh, <laughs> I hadn't given this any thought, really. But I, I then had to write a script. So having given them the shopping list, I then wrote a script around the shopping list of all of these things. And the film starts with Pete in the bed um, uh, talking about uh, order in nature and how that, you know, our, our lives are regulated. We get up at the same time every day. The alarm, go, the alarm clock goes off. We get out of bed. We get ready for work, giant comb in the hair. Um, <laughs> and, and then we whinge about people making telephone calls on, um, uh, on their mobile phones telling people that they're on the train. Uh, for, and that's all they say. And Pete did a really, you know, explained it really well. He, he put humour into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then... Uh, the metrophone, the metronome was ticking back when we superimposed some sunflower, big seed heads of sunflower, uh, sunflowers, because they're in a Fibonacci number sequence. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. he did an in, then he did an interview with. Um, oh, that was another thing I needed. We needed some vegetables. We needed some cauliflower, um, in particular, because we wanted nice big close-ups of the spiral forms in cauliflower heads and we interviewed an expert and then we went to a butterfly farm and and the expert explained to us that the the shapes in the butterfly wings were all part of um, the, the Fibonacci number sequence because yeah, yeah. they had this particular pattern um, and then the final shot um, was Pete doing his final piece to camera back in the bed um, um, basically summing up and saying, um, you know, you, you might think um, uh, nature is haphazard, but as we've learned, you know, it's, um, it, life wouldn't be worth living if it wasn't so normal. And, and of course, it's on a long lens shot. <laughs> and as he's delivering it in the background, there's a giant six foot white rabbit <laughs> walking across the field towards him for no very good reason. But, you know, that was just a bit of fun. And, uh, and he took it all in, in, uh, in, in good form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but sadly, unfortunately, it, the story doesn't end well because a couple of years later, he got liver cancer and, um, and passed away. Oh dear. Paul, that's the third time you've done this to me tonight. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm obviously just kill people off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have. Look, Paul, I think we're going to have to call in a night now because we've been talking for nearly two hours and we haven't even got it on to Doctor Who and have you back next week to talk Doctor Who next week. How do you feel about that? That's absolutely fine. Yeah. Right. Do you think people are really going to be interested in all of this? <laughs> if I say they will be, Paul, they will be. <laughs> and that's as much as there is to it. Right. I, uh, well, until next week then, I was JR and you were Paul and we will speak again then.